Hey, welcome to the latest episode of Shit We Don't Talk About, the podcast that takes on topics that need more open and honest discussion, which means some of these topics are triggering, so please take care when listening, and I'll always give you a trigger warning. For instance, here's one. Every episode contains swear words. You've been warned. Make sure to check out the show notes, which include an accessibility transcript of the podcast and all of the links for our guests at shitwedonttalkaboutpodcast.com. Hey, welcome to episode 77 of Shit We Don't Talk About. My guest is Kevin Heyer, CEO of the Higher Calling Foundation a Philadelphia-based 501c3 that destigmatizes the disease of addiction in the workplace. In this episode, Kevin shares his own personal story of addiction and recovery and how he now helps to tackle addiction stigma. Tune in. It gets good. Here we go. You have shit we don't talk about to talk about, don't you? We indeed do have shit to talk about. Some real shit. Yes, we do. All right. Let's start with identifiers. I am Mia Voss. I'm a blonde white woman in my fifties with what would be probably termed as day old hair. Um, but Hey, it's a podcast. Nobody cares. Tell us what you look like, Kevin, give us your identifier. I am a Caucasian male in my early forties with strawberry blonde hair and eyes. Listen, you have a banging hot suit on today too, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You folks, so we eventually maybe talking about crystal meth, but I'm still a lawyer, (laughs) which we don't put those together too much. So, today's topic addiction stigma. And what I love is that we got connected through my darling friend Andy, who had popped in on a live stream that I did. And when you gave your qualifier identifier for higher calling, which is your foundation, I was immediately taken. And then I've had a lot of things come up lately that are leading me to say I, this is definitely shit we don't talk about uh, is addiction, disorder, the the myths and all that. And then just your type of face to all this. So I'm excited for you to share everything. So so tell us about you. Oh, where do I start? Um, well, I'll start here. I'll start at the age of 39 years old. I was a lawyer in Philadelphia. I am still a lawyer. I was practicing employment law in a large Philadelphia law firm. And I found myself newly single after a long time. I'd been in a relationship with another attorney in a big firm, another man. And I was kind of upset about being 40 and single and feeling a little lost personally, even though I was put together professionally. And some friends said, let's go to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And I went with my friends and I say, you know, picture how Stella got her groove back, but a group of like 40-ish gay men. And somebody said to me in a moment of weakness, have you ever tried meth? It enhances intimacy, it has a very exhilarating effect. And I just, in a moment of insecurity without ever having done drugs before, I went with it. And within eight weeks, I was shooting up in crack houses and very much out of a job. And that started an 18 month descent into serious drug addiction that ended with me overdosing when fentanyl got into the methamphetamine that I had purchased. I spent 10 days on dialysis, and after I got off dialysis with my life, I started the Higher Calling Foundation to go give back, because I got a second chance that not everyone does. And I, I have to go with the the beauty and the magic of that your name, H-Y-E-R, 
And you know, I, I said it before we we hit the record button. There there is a, a beautiful symmetry to it that you you started something with that name as well too, and then to go through experience and wow, Kevin, I mean that that are just things that I think that's just part of the stigma and the myth that we can talk about as well. Of I'm sure you were probably functioning for a while until you weren't. Not long. Not long ago. A little bit. Well. People, first of all, one thing you have to understand with addiction is everyone does react to substances a little differently. And it's why, for example, why are some people alcoholics and other people can drink socially? With a drug like crystal meth, you're going to get addicted. It's, that's, it's just too powerful. Some people do a little better on it longer than others. What I say is I went off a cliff the third time. And by that, I mean, I started blowing off going to work. That's when I started shooting up as I put it in. And that's the word for it, you know houses, drug houses, whatever you want to use. You keep it real here. Um, so I'm giving your, your audience that gift. You know, after only three times, that's how quickly my life spiraled. It's a very powerful drug. It's incredible. And I think many of us who have not faced addiction or have like, yes, right. It could be coffee, porn, interior design. I mean, there's a lot of drugs of choice that people can uh, use to, what would be a lack of better, like sort of stifle uh feelings did you feel like let me ask you this did you feel like before that happened to you or that, that you hit this was there something that you were using to also kind of say i need to deaden my feelings at all or was this just a completely new thing for you it's not standing question no i wasn't using any substance or process to dumb my feelings. What I was doing though was ineffectively managing some of the frustration in my life. And I think that looking back, my closest friends will say they weren't really shocked by this. I had certain insecurities that even being in a relationship, you know, relationships don't solve all of our problems. Sometimes they right. make them worse. That I had some demons that I had not ever fully addressed. And I think that they were just slowly a ticking time bomb. And then this sudden transition of, of going into midlife being single for the first time, having this such of existential angst almost set the stage for somebody to say, hey, have you ever tried meth? And just in a moment of almost rebellion, I had, I mean, I had tried edibles maybe a few times, but I had, I, I went from the kitty end of the pool to the deep end of the pool. And, and I pulled a short straw and I got addicted. I would say this, I got hooked the first time and, and was in, if not addicted, however you want to define it. The third time is when I saw lost functionality. Meaning I stopped going to work and, and then it was just a matter of weeks before my performance deteriorated so much that, you know, they said, it's that old song, you know, closing time. I don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. You know? Right. I think a really important distinction in this conversation too is one, it, it does open it up of like, and I appreciate you sharing those little circumstances that led up to it. And I think for a lot of get these little gaps or holes or places where we're like, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. It can lead to this perfect storm uh, that you add in those variables. And then, and then again, I love that you said too, that, that everybody is different. I think that is so important when it comes to either observing addiction in yourself or in other people is we have a lot of, well, I'm not this, I, I'm not this bad, or I can I can do this, or I can function here. Everybody's function, and then taking a look at what is destructive for you, is pretty important. And I I think a lot of times we don't find that I find that out until it's too late. Circumstances play a huge role in how addiction affects you, and I also talk very candidly. So do things like race and class. All right, you know I tell oh, a story. Yes, of thank you. Okay. I really I literally have notes that say 
yeah. what's disproportionate gender, race, and orientation. So that you appreciate orientation that. and gender too. But I think in my observation in the 18 months I was addicted to crystal meth, it was race and class. I mean, I'll share a story and I, I mean, again, I'm not, not a millionaire. I'm not rich, but I'll share a story that will make you take something home. Meth obviously keeps you up for several days. There were more than a few times when I had been up for three or four days, knew I was becoming psychotic, was not safe to drive a vehicle. I was able to pay a couple hundred dollars several times, have my vehicle towed 300 miles. So I sat in the front seat beside the tow truck driver with some dumb story and the tow truck driver didn't care. That the car was making some weird sound and my buddy was a mechanic and I was erring on the side of caution and didn't want to drive it home. And you know, they didn't care, they were getting paid. So by doing that, I avoided the risk of a DUID, DUI on drugs. Not everyone has the ability to get their car towed. Now, I'm not, I mean, I should have been doing that in the first place, but if you're going to stay up for three or four days doing drugs, then at least don't drive if you're going to do that. I know many people in addiction who ended up getting arrested for situations like that, or they went to a hotel. I mean, hotel, people don't realize it, but so much drugs go on in hotels, okay? You don't know it when you're there, but they do. If you're doing drugs at the O'Connell Lodge, a little more likely to get arrested than if you're doing drugs at the Hilton. So, so there's that, a lot of that reality. There is it just the, the the monetary things that you you have, you have the monetary advantage, and then let's face it, we also have the advantage of not being profiled. Oh yeah, it's I mean we've seen it's it wrong, and that's why I talk about it in situations yes. like this. But I, I I mean I won't get into yes. That, when I say is... advantage, I'm I'm not I'm definitely not touting that. I, I want the people to have that reality. Your unearned privileges is how I call them. Unearned privileges, Kevin. I love that. Oh, unearned privileges is the word I use. It, it really is. It, and it's, it, but unfortunately, and this is why we have the conversations that we do, people don't realize that. So they just think that's not a problem because it's not happening to me. So I really appreciate that you're shining a light on, on privilege. And again, we're sitting here speaking oh, as yeah. to Caucasian people of what it is. So the great distinction on that too. I really appreciate that. Talk to me about filling the, 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 with the insurance gap, so to speak of, sure. of how much of a gap there is, because you can, I mean, and, and to, Clarify, you did not have any judicial for your- I got out of my addiction with no justice involvement. That's justice the new term for criminal. Right. Yeah. Um, my law license has never got affected by this. Um, I ultimately overdosed, but I, by the grace of my higher power, fully recovered. I had no long-term kidney damage and I spent 10 days on dialysis. That's so I am incredibly grateful. I, I jokingly say to people, I feel like my, during my day, I like when you're working on a Word document, you like may save it compulsively to like make sure you don't lose it. I like focus on gratitude compulsively because I never thought I would get a second chance at even a, a, a slimmer of hope at professional redemption. I mean, going from the 23rd floor of a of a pretty established law firm to a field, which is where they found me when I overdosed, you know, along a country road, you know, um, by a woman named Tina, which is ironic because methamphetamine is known as Tina, but in some oh, circles. that is ironic. Uh, yeah. Hey girl. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have, I'm trying to give back. That's what this, this is, this whole exercise. I mean, I walked away from practicing law voluntarily to do this. I could go back to it. I chose not to. So when we speak of voids in the market, my foundation, the higher calling foundation and higher is spelled H-Y-E-R because it's my last name. It's a plan words. Um, and certainly I like to think this is a higher calling, breaking stereotypes of hard drug addiction, meth in particular. So what we do is we do really three things, but the two nuts and bolts are this. It's providing services that insurance does not cover to help men and women in recovery reintegrate into the workforce. So you go to rehab, you leave rehab, health insurance paid for rehab. Health insurance will probably pay for a one-on-one -on -one therapist 
when you leave. And that's great stuff too. I mean, I see a therapist, therapists are amazing. Love therapists, but there's a lot more you need than just that. Okay, job placement assistance, coaching through the International Coach Federation. That's one of my most popular services. We, um, we even help expunge certain convictions for people so you're not shamed in the selection process. One example is there are women with old prostitution convictions from addiction. Sometimes they were trafficked. They didn't even ask to be there. And even if they did choose to be there, we all make mistakes. We shouldn't shame someone 20 years later. And I, I'm thinking of one client in particular this happened with. 20 years later, she still has to bring up in a job interviewer an old prostitution conviction. It's wrong and we're putting stock in that. So in jurisdictions where we can do that, we're going to step in and pay with our resources to have outside attorneys at a reduced rate. Okay. Um, we also repair smiles, which I'm very proud of, which is a nice way for saying dental damage from addiction. Now, that is something that insurance may cover, but not everyone has the money for that kind of thing. You know, we've spent two or, I think it was $2,500 recently to get our first client um, lectures. But, you know, we call it repairing smiles. And what it does for someone's confidence, yeah, it's just, it, it, it's beautiful. So we do a host of other services, reference advocacy, going back to a former employer and saying, look, I get you may not be able to take this person back. They, they're not necessarily even looking to go back. But can we get some endorsement of something they did to help them move on with their life? And most, if you do it appropriately, carefully, most employers will do that. You know, interview preparation, networking events for people in recovery and our allies, as I put it. You know, I came of age in the early 2000s, you know, when gay rights was just gaining mainstream acceptance. And I remember in college, you know, some of the professors would have stickers on their doors that said ally. So you knew they were safe to talk to. And the other professors, if they didn't, doesn't mean they hate you. It just means they're staying out of it, which is completely their business. You know, we're trying to do that in the workplace now. Like, imagine how cool it would be if people at work could identify as an ally to people in recovery. So if someone didn't, that again, doesn't mean that just means they're choosing to stay out of it, which is fully their right. But those who do want to get into it can give that sense of support, which leads in perfectly to my last piece of what we do, which is we educate employers on why hiring people in recovery is such a great business move and how to have a recovery-friendly workplace. And as an employment attorney, a little bit of a leg up on doing that and some credibility with them. And I talk about, and this is where a lot of our revenue comes from, is selling these trainings. We're a 501c3. Um, to employers and saying, look, how do you have a recovery from the workplace? How do you handle a relapse? How do you handle falling into addiction? How do you handle a family member affected? We also work with family members. They're the other side of addiction and they go to hell and back too. They do. And I, I love it. It's like empathy 101 in a sense too, of getting people started, of breaking that stigma. And, I, and it's interesting because they, I think a lot of us in the last 20 years, our first somewhat introduction into what can be uh, the seedy underbelly of addiction is um, intervention, the A and E show, which I don't know what your your thoughts on that. I, I can see how it's it's helpful and harmful um, because there there are a lot of people. I mean, you do get to see people have that the the conversation, and you've harmed me in this type of way. But um, and you even mentioned that you've you know spoken with people too that that are not ready to even have that conversation because they've been so damaged by you know folks who have who've you know caused harm. I, I do have a thought on on the show intervention and and, yeah. and that, this is something you you wouldn't know, but I have a brother that I have not seen in twelve years. And the last time I saw my brother was an intervention. I have a brother who has a serious alcohol addiction, and he's married to a woman who does. So it, it takes, when your spouse has the same problems, you can validate and reinforce each other. So to me, an intervention is not something that you would televise as a reality TV show. So I 
respect that show. I'm not knocking it, but in, I can't in a million years imagine laying up the personal emotions that go involved in a family that's been devastated by addiction like mine um, on national television. But um, so I don't know how accurate it is. I don't watch it because it reminds me of the pain in our family. But, you know, I have a, my mother lost her brother to suicide from untreated addiction. So this devastates families. It runs in families. That's the other point. 50% of addiction is genetics. Okay. And then, and this is, there's one thing your listeners take from this. Aside from the genetic predisposition, addiction is generational. Addiction is fundamentally about ineffectively managed trauma. Okay. So when children are damaged by the chaos of the adults, chaos of the addictions of the adults in their lives, that causes them trauma. They're further traumatized by the stigma that they know that their adults, parents, grandparents have, okay? You don't think there are kids on playgrounds that haven't heard your mom as a drunk? Of course kids do. Kids aren't dumb. So those kids then have trauma that they take into adulthood and don't effectively manage. And so kids aren't filtered them. either. <laughs> no, they don't. Kids say the, the quiet part out loud, unfortunately. Yeah. So addiction is so much generational. And we are trying so hard in my foundation to try to break this cycle. Addiction itself is a cycle but it becomes a generational one. And you know, I say, we think big at our foundation. And I say, you know, I wanna stamp out addiction because it's a disease like we stamp out polio. Realistically, will we ever fully do that? Probably not, but we could make a huge dent in this disease by ending it. That's why when I go on LinkedIn, I say to people that see my writing, please, you are hurting innocents, children, when you excessively stigmatize addiction because you are preventing the adults in their lives from feeling safe about asking for help. They don't want to be canceled in our cancel culture. I use that analogy a lot. So they don't get help. They don't get help. They keep creating trauma in everybody's lives. And eventually they either end up in jail, institutions, or death. That's what we often say. And it's a death, really. Because even when you go to jail, many people still do drugs in jail. Okay? Or drinking. Sure. Or sure. So it becomes, you have to treat it. But you can. So I, I'm saying a lot because I have all this excitement and passion around it. But, you know, it's, we have got to address addiction in America. And my foundation has stepped up to do it. It really is. And I, what I, I think the first part of that is just changing the wording, changing the dialogue. I think that's a, that's a huge part. Even again, I just like, even using the word disorder, I think is, is so empowering to that. And I have a lot of addiction in, in my family and, and I thank you for bringing that up too, that it, it is generational. And I think just saying that alone can keep people from feeling very isolated of it's just me and what's wrong with me and why can't I? Again, the comparison piece I think is important to bring up so that we can have that empathy of like, just because I can drink, like you said, socially uh, and all that, don't lord that over people as well too. We all have these different things that we have no idea how you're going to react to it, right? Well, the whole, the other thing is whether you are, whatever you are addicted to, ends are always the same. So whether your addiction is to heroin, an opiate, fentanyl, which is an opiate, or any of the other, any other opiates, like oxycodone, or a stimulant, which was my case, methamphetamine, and then to a lesser degree, cocaine at the end, okay? Or alcohol, the ends are gonna be the same. Some are more cruelly efficient, that's my way I like to say it, than others. A meth addiction will set in much faster than an alcohol addiction, but at the end of the day, the alcoholic, the meth addict, the coke addict, the opiate addict, they're all gonna deal with the same heartbreak. It's always a progressive, incurable disease, but you can manage it as a long-term chronic condition in recovery, with diabetes, HIV, I mean, you can recover, you can enter recovery. And I'm one of those people. And there are many people that have, you know, so there is hope, but you've got to get treatment. And that's so, our big message. 
I think the emotional piece is, is really important as well too. And I, I need to look it up, but I, I first learned that from a Ted talk, talk uh, was it TEDx mile high? And it's a young man who was a victim at Columbine. And he, what I thought was initially going to be a talking, it comes out in, in a wheelchair. He was in, impaired by this wow. horrible incident here in, in uh, Colorado, I think it was nine, uh, 1999. And so I thought the talk was going to be about gun control. And it turns out was him talking about his opioid addiction because he was giving these incredible, pow incredibly powerful painkillers at 17. And the crucial part to the story was that he was not emotionally equipped. There was, there was no count injury. And then also the ease with which he was given these drugs. And then of course, this was right when the Sackler family had their big giant rise to fame of awfulness. Mm -hmm. Get me started on that. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast, but it was, it was, it was very eye opening to, to see that piece. And this was about five years ago. And I, I will tell you, unfortunately, this young man lost his life he helped a lot of people, but then uh, succumbed. And so there's an importance in having that conversation too, this emotional piece, which is, I know what, what you're helping people to understand too. It's like, Oh, you're, you know, you, you like, it's a weakness. No, it's not. It, the brain chemistry gets changed in addiction. It, this is absolutely a disease. And one thing, and I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm an employment lawyer that works in the recovery world. I'm not a mental health professional, but what I try to do is, I do like to be aware of words because words matter very much. And words like drug addict, junkie, tweaker, you know, certainly, especially words like that are deeply offensive and they're so damaging because for the people using tweaker with metal, okay, for people who fit it, and obviously some people do, they internalize it. They think of themselves as that. I'm just a tweaker in a trailer park. I'm, they, they internalize it and they rise to the occasion. And then for the people that don't fit it, like myself, you may not think you have a problem when you do. And it's bad for even everybody else because it then lulls you into this false sense of security. Well, I'm only addicted to drugs. I'm only addicted to some pills. I'm only addicted to alcohol. Well, in our foundation, again, of all the clients we have, half my clients right now are people who are in for alcohol. And you know what? Alcohol can absolutely devastate lives. I've seen that in my own family. You know, three DUIs is a felony in many states. You know, that's that's a tough cross to have to bear around, you know. <sighs> Having to spend five years in prison for killing someone driving drunk in an accident. You know, it, alcohol can, I mean, it's everywhere too. Men and women who overcome alcoholism, in my opinion, are the strongest because it's everywhere. You can't cut alcohol out of your life. Nobody offers me a bump of meth or coke at lunch, but they're going to offer you a list of cocktails, you know, and I, then you have to have the strength. I mean, tasteful humor. I true, love it. Know? No, it's it's so true. Like, hey, how about we go do a bump in the bathroom as opposed to, oh, you know, you offer that. And it, the, there's so much so ease much. in how alcohol is is just oh, yeah. so indoctrinated into our society. Such a great point, Kevin. I mean, I mean, who socially shoots meth? Nobody socially shoots meth, but people socially drink, you know, I mean. It's really true. And and again, I think that the, the piece regarding insurance and about as, as far as now that the Sackler family has had to you know, give a lot of money, they're still pretty protected and, and much, much, much too late for uh, for treatment and for, because you know, there's a lot of people like they, they get addicted. And then, and I've, I've been listening to a lot of YouTube. There's a channel that has a lot of the stories of fentanyl. And I think it's important to also talk about this because the, the time difference from when uh, you are recovering from your addiction to what is happening right now on the street. I mean, it is, it is so fucking dangerous right now. It is scary. It is downright scary. I volunteer in Kenya. I had to F-bomb. I had to bust out. 
you're fine. You're, this is the shit we don't talk about. Right. Um, and I hope none of my humor has been in any poor taste. You know, I, I, you have to have a little bit of humor to talk about this stuff. You know, taste. Yeah, you it's, know, it's a spoonful um, of sugar to me, so. Oh, you know, I mean, somebody said, why, why would you take a, you know, method 39? I said, look, if you're going to take a crystal method 39, do it right. And I did. And that's also, in all seriousness, though, part of the problem. When you have the resources to buy drugs or buy alcohol, it can sometimes get worse. So we also try to say out there, you know, all the people's lives aren't perfect, which you see on the surface isn't necessarily what's going on in the background. That's not a huge part of our work, but it's worth saying, you know, people never thought, you know, when I would take Ubers and it was for a long time, I was able to hide this because nobody thinks the lawyer is spun out on crystal meth in the middle of the day. Okay? Right. But like, you just seem you know, energetic and snappy. <laughs> exactly. He's effervescent. You know? <laughs> yeah, effervescent. Um, you know, but we're, we're, I'm trying to, in all seriousness, tell the stories authentically as I can, because there is such heartbreak around this. You know, I mean, this is a heartbreaking disease and there's no other word for it. It destroys families, it destroys communities, and it harms children. I mean, the, this disease is in a cycle and there's a generational cycle. And I am just so passionate about getting out there to one, break the stereotypes that reinforce the stigma because the stigma makes it harder for people to ask for help. And then they don't ask for help, they're not able to go get the help that they need and then they die. Or they continue creating wreckage in their lives that creates trauma for everyone around them, you know? And so, you made such a good point. I mean, it's really, it, it's just about, it's, it's literally just down to speed because it's the same with, without, without being treated, it's going to be the same result. Oh, you um, will, you will die from this disease if you don't get treatment eventually. It may not be tomorrow, it may not be next year, it may even be in 10 years. That's where this stuff has independent variables that play into it. But it is, the plane always crashes. And he, I, I think I can speak for, I won't speak for anyone other than me. I think most professionals in this field would agree it is not sustainable. There always will be some kind of a crash at some point. You have to address it. But you can. That's the message of hope we're offering. And at our foundation, it comes to a second chance at a career. So just so it's all clear to your listeners, the Higher Calling Foundation, spelled H-Y-E-R, it's highercalling.org is our website. We're a 501c3 that has three roles. The softest piece, but it's legitimate, is breaking those stereotypes that reinforce the stigma. Because stigma makes it harder to ask for help. And then when you don't get help, you die. Okay. And do you Second do that through education or programming? Yeah, speaking okay. education. Yeah, it, it's on our website. It's just the smallest piece, but it's a legitimate component. The second piece is filling that void in the market for addiction recovery insurance. There's nothing to help you when you leave rehab, get back into the workforce through reentry, uh, securing employment, and maintaining it. That's why we're so big on our coaching through the International Coach Federation, mentoring programs, you know, networking events for people in recovery and their allies. Um, you know, like I said, the legal services that help you get back to work, the reference, I love the reference advocacy. That's really rewarding to, to help some go back to an employee because they can't do it themselves. Somebody else has to be the one to do it. And you again, know, the reference advocacy, to- yes, is having that. Uh, that is a piece, Kevin, I never even thought of. It's just, yeah. it's a burned bridge. Oh, that's what my that's- background, you know, it is, it is. And sometimes that's why most of the employers are afraid you're going to ask them to take the person back. And we say, no, we're not. I don't think it's even good for a lot of these people to even go back. Sure, I mean mind, that's yeah. that's the same location where things yeah. were, and if they're not strong enough, I don't. Yeah, I don't. That doesn't. Once you like make it clear, clear, but what's also kind of neat though is we've had some people eventually get hired back by places that fired them after they've had enough year. I'm thinking of two people right now, enough time in recovery that they showed they came back, and how beautiful is that? And that is. Employers say, you know what? I like the new Mia, the new Kevin. 
you can, yeah, I mean, there's so much positivity in this. So when you hear me talk about the heavy parts, there is positivity. And we do other stuff. We're paying for someone to get to interviews within reason. I'm not going to fly you across the country for something. But the people we're helping are not in, in that moment in time flying across the country for interviews. We're talking about stuff in their communities. You know? it, and you're yeah. also talking about healing, which is such a huge piece that I think is is also unsung in a way too. There's there's recovery, but then like this healing, healing through the employer, healing to them that heals their stigma as well. And then they can go out into their community. I mean, think about that, you know, that subtle, you know, butterfly effect almost of, of them being healed of the stigma. And then everyone loves a story like that. Do you know? Love our stories. You know, I mean, my main, mine may be a little different in some ways, but everybody's story is unique and powerful. No one's is better or, or worse than the others. I want to add one thing your client, your, your listeners may appreciate. We will help you get to work until you get your first paycheck, if that's a barrier. Some people are so blow their lives up catastrophically in addiction, they can't even afford to get to the interviews. They can't afford to get to work till they get the paycheck. So the body, it's all individualized, Mia. We, with, if it is within reason, like we paid 500 bucks to get someone Microsoft Office training and paid for the babysitting at night. It, it has to be within reason. I, you know, I don't have $100 million sitting here to do all this with, I wish I did. But if it's within reason and is related to helping you secure and maintain employment or your family members, we, we will do it. Our donors are, are good, generous people. And, um, and then lastly, it's going to the employers. That's the last piece. And selling what I call cultural competence training around recovery. You know, how do you talk about this work? How do you attract, develop, and engage employees in recovery and our families? You know, and, and there's so many ways. You know, here's one. Do you offer Narcan training to your staff? as a form of giving back to the community in the Lexone, people and are can I, dealing Can I just ask you to clarify for our listeners, for, for folks who don't know the importance of Narcan and it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Naloxone is the name of the, the ingredient. Narcan is a brand name of something that reverses opioid. Overdoses. Sorry, I spelled it wrong. N-A-R-C-A-N. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So yeah, Narcan nasal spray is the brand name. Um, and I think there may be one or two others, but most people know it as Narcan or Naloxone. And a-L-O-X-O-N-E. Bottom line, it reverses an opioid overdose. And it can be very effective and it's not hard to use. And I feel like it should be like using a fire extinguisher, teaching CPR. Even if you don't know people in your circles that use drugs, okay, but there are people that do. And if you could save a life, you would think most people, and I think most people would, would like to try to be able to do it. And you don't know if you're in traffic, you see it. I mean, it's ought to be like using a fire extinguisher, CPR, people should know how to use them. Changing you know, a tire. So yeah. You know, so there's I'll so much we can do. Like I say to employers, here's one. When you're recruiting for positions, what if you said in your job postings, you know, people of color, LGBTQ plus individuals, and people in recovery are especially encouraged to apply or whatever minority group you're picking. What if you posted job postings at rehabs as people were leaving, sober living houses? You know, make it a form of DEI and B, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And as an employment lawyer with a big HR network, I speak for the Society of HR Management in DC. I had a real life. It's a Kevin Hire, ESQ.com is my background prior to starting this. Kevin Hire, H-Y-E-R-E-S-Q.com shows you everything I did before I got addicted. And I'll put I'll put the links in the the show notes as well Thank too you. because I would I would love for you to to for, for people to yeah see that because you are the living embodiment of this this gap that this gap right here and you can't see because I'm on it but I'm holding my fingers up. And that 
people can fall right in that crack after they they get out and it's super tenuous right it's it's very and they delicate because they don't have enough support and then people yeah. make it, then they feel worse about themselves and then society shakes their finger at them like say i told you so like mm-hmm. it's not fair you have to give people a real second chance and that's where you hear my voice gets more passionate it's got to be a real one i mean it's not fair to say it has to be a real one and then the gratitude you have at a second chance and the meaning and purpose you get from a career or whatever it is around that second chance draws the pull of the addiction to a manageable level of treatment. And I'm someone who had a very serious addiction to a highly addictive drug, arguably the most addictive drug that I use in the most extreme way. And I've been out of it you know, for two years now and I've been able to do it and I'm going to continue to do it because I get the meaning and purpose from running this and giving back to others. Thank you what for taking the courage. Thing? I, I think it's incredible. And thank you for thank you. for the courage on that too. I really want to acknowledge you and tell you that I see you for this work too. And then I, I just learned a ton as well too about these practical pieces, which is exactly why I do this podcast of the, the, the misunderstandings. And then there's other discussions like this about addiction stigma that people think they know about and they don't. So I love this. I have Two more things for you. Sure. One, just um, to talk real quickly about the ICF, the International Coach uh, Federation, yes. how you got involved with it. And I have one. Absolutely. So we have on our website right now five exceptional uh, life and career coaches. They're all practicing professionals. They're not therapists, which is a perfect complement to therapy. So it's, it's not in place of it. It's in addition. Mm-hmm. Um, they're outstanding. They're all trained with credentials through the International Coach Federation, which is one of the most Probably, I think it is the gold standard of coaching in the U.S. And just like you have coaching as a kid, there's coaching as adults. And it is so helpful. It's unlimited in time because it's all individualized. And what I mean by that is instead of saying you get six sessions with a coach, what do you need to get back to work? I really like how we individualize. So some people may need six sessions. Some people may need 12. Some people may need 15 or 18. You know, I'm not going to keep somebody on coaching for five or 10 years. But the bottom line is what do we need to do to give you a second chance? How do we hit reset? On my um, LinkedIn um, main bio, I say hitting reset is part of what I talk about. We hear too much about hitting bottom, and you do have to hit bottom. I'm not disputing that. But um, my message is on the other side of hope. Let's hit reset. What do we have to do to, as much as possible, reset the clock for you? And if we can't, because you can't go back to a prior role, like say you have felonies that prevent certain positions, how do we transfer those skills? So our coaching is something any of your listeners, if they're in recovery, their family members are eligible for just contact me through our website. And um, and yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It's so helpful. It's I get it myself. It's, it's, it's neat. It's really neat stuff. That is beautiful. And I actually just thought of one more little side question. Where do you think would be a good resource from a proactive standpoint if someone is either observing someone in their life that is pre-hitting that rock bottom or they feel that themselves? Do you have any suggestions for us? Sure. I mean, I'm on the you know, the recovery side of addiction. Yes. But I understand it's a, it's a question. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you have, only you can answer if you have an addiction. Addiction is absolutely a disease, but there's no, I don't think really blood tests you can give for it. Now, if you're overdosed in a hospital from fentanyl being in methamphetamine, it's kind of hard to say you don't have a drug problem, as in my right. case, okay? Right. But you have to look in the mirror and say, you know, is this hurting my life? And to me, the essence of my addiction was the cycle, the Something bad would happen, being up for four days, saying, you know, how many times me, I would say to myself, never, 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 this has to stop, this has to stop, this can never happen again. And I would believe it in the moment, and then I'd be good for a while, and then I'd start to miss it, and that is the essence of addiction. And then you 
back and then it happens again and it gets worse and then you know your relationships get hurt and what's so scary with the drug like meth at least for me was my judgment got more and more impaired on it and i did stay out of prison thank god and i was only an engineer. i wasn't selling i wasn't on the cops radar but the bottom line was my theory my psychiatrist remember her looking me in the island age she said kevin you are going to end up in prison if you don't stop doing this just you're going to just it's a matter of time your judgment will become so impaired by this drug, and even if you're an end user, you got to do something. You will do something, and then your life, not that it can't be redeemed, but it would have taken a very different course. So you got to see in yourself, are you are you going down that rabbit hole? And then if you are, go get help. And we'll help people find resources if they don't feel there's someone they could go to. I appreciate that. Thank you for sure. letting me add that, ask that distinction, yeah, more of a distinction. All right, one more question. Do you have a favorite swear word or phrase that you like to bust out? Um, don't believe oh. you're on bullshit. So what is it? Don't believe you're on bullshit. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's we, because <laughs> that's yeah, we, we say that at work sometimes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, oh, some people need to be reminded, though. some more than others, but yeah. Uh, and thank you for giving great advice with a swear word in it, because that's you know. You, you diplomacy really is the that. art of telling someone to go to hell in such a way they look forward to the trip. I like that one. Say that again. Diplomacy is the art of telling someone to go to hell in such a way they look forward to the trip. <laughs> Andy, has you're not familiar house. with that one? I, no, I'm. I'm. I just feel like I just got a sweet treat that I'm going to keep repeating over and over again. Andy likes to What's say, stitch, "Stitch that on a pillow." Oh, mine is just my favorite. Whoever is like, um, what is it? Oh, well, motherfuckers actually just, oh, motherfucker. It just fills every little gap. So it certainly can. That is for sure. Favorite that doesn't involve a swear word, but it, it, it properly evokes my frustration is, oh, Christ on a cracker. And that makes no Christ sense. On a cracker. Yeah. It makes, when, when is he on a cracker? You tell me never, or maybe he is a cracker. There you go. So in the form of on that note, thank you for asking me. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this has been so delightful. So we're going to have yeah. everything in the show notes. Kevin, thank you for um, staying true to your message and putting that out there. We, we need it. Thank you. I appreciate you letting me have the opportunity to speak to your listeners. I hope you guys can hear. I have some real passion and I'm happy to talk to anybody about this offline. Just contact me through the website. Um, and I promise you, I will get back to you. It may take me a day or two, but I will return everyone's email. I don't know. You called me pretty quickly and got back to me. I was excited. So I love it. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You can check out the show notes and guest links at shitwedonttalkaboutpodcast.com. If you like this episode, please subscribe and give it a like or leave a review, especially if it's a good one. See you next time. Bye.